You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. If you could all return to your seats. Our scripture readings for today are out of Luke 1, 26-38, and then Isaiah 9, 1-7. If you uh, don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some Bibles in the pews in front of you. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take one of those home as a gift uh, from Trinity. Again, our our New Testament reading we're going to start with is out of Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, and then Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. When I finish the reading for the day, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you could respond, thanks be to God. So our New Testament reading today, Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of the greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call, him named, call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel, angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her child, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. This is the word of the Lord. And our Old Testament reading and sermon for the text, to, or uh, subject for the sermon text today, is Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he was made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior is battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask now that you would come and in your kindness and your mercy, you would open our eyes by your spirit 
to behold marvelous things in your word. Um, There are truly marvelous things in this text, God. Things Things that we must see, that we desperately need to see. In an age that idolizes politics, in an age in which we don't understand the nature of authority, the goodness of authority, the glory of your authority, God, I pray that we would understand again the reign of Jesus, we would bend the glorious knee to to King Jesus and, and celebrate his reign over all things forever and ever and ever. In your name we pray, amen. We love to celebrate the coming of Jesus. Christmas is, for many of us, our favorite time of the year. Um, it is for me. Um, the, uh, the way the house feels um, after the tree is up and the, um, the greenery is up and the, um, we uh, print out um, Advent hymns and hang them on the wall uh, when we hang the lights, or Hayes, sorry, hangs the lights. Um, it, it, it's a wonderful season. Um, um, just the, the warmth of um, the, the kind of giving way of fall to winter, um, the filling of the house with um, new smells and light and warmth, um, that there is a feel to Christmas um, and to the Advent season that's just um, simply glorious and good. Um, and, and yet we oftentimes don't understand the, the, the weight, the subversiveness of what Christmas is. You see, for many of us, Christmas is merely a sentimental season. It's a season for exchanging gifts. It's a season, perhaps, for celebrating the close of a new year um, and, and something having to do with the coming of baby Jesus. Um, tonight, we will remember the story of the coming of Jesus with our um, children, um, and, and there will be acuteness to the little ones with the little spot on their nose dressed as sheep. And it's important that we celebrate that tonight. It's important that we remember that story tonight. Um, but the cuteness will inherently have a danger about it. And you see, the danger is to forget the weight, the magnitude of what it is Advent is all about. To, to forget the glory of what that night commemorates, what it marks. You see, for many of us, Christmas has been marginalized. It's been, um, it's been minimized. It's been turned into a cute holiday in which we sing songs, in which lights are hung, in which Home Depot has a massive, massive um, commercial push and presence, um, in which we're just reminded of um, that this is a season when we're supposed to buy a whole lot of stuff, exchange gifts, and has something to do with Jesus and a manger. It may even, for those of us who've been around the church for a long time, have something to do with celebrating the fact that our sins are now forgiven because of this baby coming in a manger. And all of this is, to one degree or another, good and true, but it misses the weight of what this season is about. You see, the early Christian church confessed, oftentimes at pains of death, that Jesus Christ is Lord. This didn't have to do merely with warmth of home. It didn't have merely to do with a baby in a manger. It didn't have merely to do with my personal sins being forgiven and me having a new religious experience of God. It was a subversive and political declaration. 
It was a confession in the midst of a world, a world that confessed that Caesar alone was Lord, um, in, in the midst of a world that confessed that politics was Lord, in the midst of a, um, a society that confessed and believed um, with great fervency um, in all of the known world, um, according to the West. Um, it confessed and believed that peace and justice would only come through the lordship and the reign of the empire. And in the midst of that world, a church was born that confessed that this baby born in a manger was Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, and that he alone was Lord. That he alone, through him, comes justice. Through him alone comes righteousness. Through him alone comes a peace that will never end. And that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. This was the message of Advent. The exchanging of gifts is a celebration of the coming of this Lord, this true Lord. In other words, what we celebrate in these weeks in Advent is an anticipation of the coming of our King, the one who reigns over everything. And in a world like ours that idolizes politics, that believes both on the right and the left that salvation comes by electing the right members to Congress. That health can come through political mandates. That life can be born, that people can flourish um, through the right political party being put in power. We stand as the people of Jesus Christ confessing that no, 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 no. Jesus is Lord. In our day, there are few things more scandalous than this political confession. And it is absolutely political. Um, I want to take um, this Sunday to look at Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking at um, a handful of texts during these weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, um, including Christmas Eve, um, that, that look at the subversive nature of Advent and Christmas. How the coming of Jesus overturns the world. It, it, it turns the world upside down. Um, the prophets, they spoke of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. Um, they didn't talk merely about some sort of new personal relationship with God, some new religious dynamic in how you would kind of internalize your relationship with God. No, they talked about the world itself being turned upside down. Isaiah and Daniel would speak of the coming of the Messiah um, as stars falling from the sky. It's the sun and the moon being darkened. Um, these weren't talking about um, kind of end of the known universe type moments, but, but no stars and sun and moon, heavenly bodies represented kingdoms. They represented the whole order of the world. They represented rulers and authorities, real rulers and real authorities. So when it spoke of, um, when the prophet spoke of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, as these stars falling from the sky, as the sun and moon being darkened, they spoke of Advent not primarily in personal religious terms, but, but in public terms. In the declaration that the world itself in the coming of Jesus would be turned upside down. The way that the world works, the way that the world would be ruled, the way that justice would be done, that the way that the nations would organize themselves would be absolutely flipped on its head. That something brand new was coming in the coming of Jesus. 
And so for these weeks, we want to look at and consider together how has the coming of Jesus overturned the very nature of the world? As the people of God, we are to stand in the midst of a world that denies these things and to confess them to be, to be true. To sing the songs of Advent as the coming of Emmanuel, the one who will rule the nations. Um, to, to celebrate together the way that the world actually is in the coming of Jesus, the Christ. And so may God in his mercy take these weeks and take these texts and help us to live more faithfully in the world. So why Isaiah 9? Isaiah 9 is taken up often. It's a, it's a favorite of Christians historically um, to mark the season of Advent. Um, it, is, uh, it stands at the beginning of Isaiah as a prophecy um, anticipating the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the suffering servant that he'll describe um, later in Isaiah 53, the coming of the one who would rule the nations, the one who would restore the people of God, conquering their enemies and establishing them such that all the nations of the earth would stream into this people. And here in Isaiah 9, this often quoted Advent text. Um, It's often quoted because Matthew and Luke both take up this text to describe um, as being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus himself. That Jesus is this child born, this one who would rule all the nations. It's taken up here, and I want to focus in on the meaning of this text and the problem that this text um, presents to us. How, How does this text describe the problems that confront us as humanity in the world. Um, In Isaiah chapter 9, Israel has come to um, the end of what has been this progressive idolatry that was born in them back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you don't know the story, um, Israel comes to Samuel. Samuel uh, was ruling over them as... uh, Um, as their representative. They didn't have a king. They come to Samuel um, and they tell Samuel, we demand, we want a king like the other nations. We want a king that will go out and fight for us. We want a king that will represent us. We want the pomp and the circumstance and the glory that attends having a king like the other nations. Um, As you go dive into Samuel, um, you you find that this arises largely becomes uh, because of the unfaithfulness of Samuel's sons, the unfaithfulness of Samuel as a father to his own children. Samuel's troubled by this. Um, Anytime you hear Israel in the Bible asking to be like the other nations or wanting to go and be with the other nations, um, that's a big clue that something's going horribly wrong um, within the history of Israel. So Samuel goes to God and begins to ask God what he should do. And God has this to say to Samuel. Um, They have rejected me from being king over them. There is, at the heart of the story of Israel, beginning there in 1 Samuel chapter 8, a rejection of God as king. Um, We don't trust God as king. If you go back all the way to the garden, God, standing as king and Lord, Issues to them laws and commands. Don't eat from the fruit of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
much has been made about the arbitrariness of that rule, but at the, at, the, at the essence of the knowledge of good and evil is this call to humanity to depend on me as your king to decree for you what good and evil is. In other words, live um, in moral dependence on me as your king, as your lord. I'm at the heart of 1 Samuel 8 and the heart of what takes place in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 is a rejection of God as our king, as our Lord. It's a refusal to acknowledge his authority, his authority over all things. And that has played itself out over and over and over again in the history of humanity. You see, the way that God has designed the world is that all authority is subject to to his authority. Well, he hasn't designed the world so that we all kind of function autonomously and alone, um, but rather that, that the whole world is ordered in authority, whether we're talking about the home, or we're talking about government, or we're talking about the church. All of these spheres have authority, but all of those authorities are meant to be answerable to God. And Samuel recognizes in 1 Samuel 8 and moving into chapter 9 that Israel's rejection, um, their demanding of God to give them a king, an earthly king, ultimately is a rejection of God as their king. And if you remove God as your king, all you have left is earthly tyrants. The Bible describes our spiritual problem, our problem of sin, our refusal to love God and to know God and to trust God and to obey God as being manifested in political ways in the history of our world. Samuel described this problem, this refusal to have God as their king. Um, he, He describes for Israel pristinely the history that they will know because of this rejection. If you don't want God as your king, if you only want an earthly king, if you seek out your salvation from an earthly ruler, what you will have is tyranny. What you will have is an authority that demands from you and takes from you, who seeks honor from you, who will build up his name and his glory by demanding from you um, more than he ever should. And as um, the the history of Israel plays out, you see this unfold um, as the kings get further and further and further away from their establishment with Saul and with David. It reaches a high point in the reign of Solomon, David's son, where wisdom and light, the temple is built, seems to rule the day, but immediately afterwards, even towards the end of Solomon's own reign, idolatry begins to seep in. Oppression begins to seep in. These kings don't rule subject to God, but establish their own laws, their own righteousness, their own models of justice. Not dependent on God, not answerable to God, um, but rather tyrannically ruling making all men men subject to them and their authority without their authority being subject to God's authority. And so this politics breeds a spiritual problem. Righteousness not defined by God and his law. A wisdom not defined by the words of God. A justice that is oppression. A rule that is tyrannical. And so the hubris of authority not answerable to God breeds darkness, moral darkness, 
As you see here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 presents us with a problem. The people who walked in darkness. Darkness, scripturally, um, always has to do with a lack of wisdom. You see this in the Proverbs. Where light and dark is used to contrast walking in wisdom versus walking in folly. And it's also used throughout scripture to describe walking in moral darkness. Doing evil and not knowing what you're doing. So the result of this political problem giving way to a spiritual problem is the people who walk in moral darkness. A people who are subject to tyranny. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor. Tyranny and oppression. Blood and the multiplication of violence. Verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood. So the problem that the Bible describes in our world is not merely private. It's not merely spiritual. It doesn't merely have to do with the afterlife. Christianity is not merely about where you go when, you're, when you die. Christianity is not merely about what's going on inside your secret heart. The Bible describes our world as being overrun with darkness, moral darkness, with politicians and fathers and husbands and pastors and business managers who presuming to have authority in and of themselves rule tyrannically rule oppressively, establishing their own models of righteousness, of right and wrong, of good and evil, not dependent to or subject to the laws of God, not subject to the authority of God, but establishing their own in homes, in churches, in businesses, in governments. And as such, We have a world overrun, not merely with a kind of privatized spiritual darkness, but a public moral darkness. Not merely with humans, individuals enslaved to sin and the tyranny of death, but a whole public world, a whole nation, whole companies, whole schools overrun and subject to tyranny and slavery. Oppression and injustice. World overrun with violence and the multiplication of wickedness. You see, the savior that we need is not someone that will merely whisk us off to heaven someday when we die. The savior that our world needs is not merely one who will comfort us inside our hearts maybe quelling our anxieties, helping us to fight off our own particular addictions. No, no, what we need is a king. Um, there, an author I read this week in talking about this text said that often we, um, we declare that Jesus Christ has come to be the savior of mankind. And, and, and if um, nine plagues um, are, are, are haunting and infecting humanity. Oftentimes we only describe the work of Jesus in terms of him coming to heal two of those nine. 
So, so we talk about him coming to solve kind of our spiritual problems. We talk about him coming to solve our, um, our, our personal wrath issues, the fact that we're subject to the judgment of God, but we never um, see a Jesus who comes to actually deal with the, the very public problems that we deal with in this world, the very political problems that we deal with in this world, the very relational problems that we deal with, this in, the, in, deal with in this world. We see a Jesus who comes to deal with these small issues over here. I'm sorry, not small, massive issues, but private issues over here. But are rarely confronted with the claims of Jesus and the confession of the early church that he is Lord. The season of Advent is not not merely about anticipating Jesus coming to rule in your heart. It is about longing, waiting for, anticipating the day when the reign and the authority of Jesus will be manifest everywhere, when all injustice will be put away forever, in which all oppression and tyranny will be put away forever, in which all moral darkness, public moral darkness, will be put away forever. The season of Advent is about anticipating, because of the coming of Jesus, and who he claims to be and is. The darkness will be put away everywhere, not just in our hearts. And so I want to look at Isaiah 9 and how it answers the question, how will sorrow, the sorrow born of tyranny, turn to joy? How will moral darkness and folly turn to light? How will the end of the yoke, the rod, the staff of oppressors be broken? What will be the end of the hubris of all politics or the end of politics itself? In this text, we see the promise of light, of broken staffs, sorrow turning to joy. And as it does so, it doesn't merely call us out of the world, but it promises that Jesus and his reign, his authority, his kingdom comes to be established and to fill up this whole world, to replace Godless politics with the reign of Jesus over all things. It, it was notable to me for whatever reason this week, just, just reflecting on the, the various kind of subversive revolutionary political movements that have taken place um, really through the his, throughout history of how central the calendar was to those revolutions. Um, you have, uh, just even immediately jumping off, the, the French Revolution, 1792. They wanted to reset all of history, reset the whole calendar around that day, that this would be day zero, and then to build an entire calendar, um, a, a new calendar around celebrating um, the, the, um, the, the, the coming of the revolution. The Russian Revolution, um, again, attempted to reset the calendar, even began to try to reset the whole week and how the work week worked. Um, Diocletian, Roman emperor, probably the, the craziest of the bunch. And it's, that's saying a lot, given the list of crazy, crazy Roman emperors. Tempted to declare that the, the coming of his reign, that the whole calendar would be organized around his birth. Um, 
It just seems that every time a new subversive movement, a new revolution, a new kind of advent of a new day in which good news would be proclaimed, in which justice would be established, in which um, a ruler would come as Lord, um, the calendar gets, um, one of the the central things that takes place is they attempt to reset the whole calendar, to reorganize the whole calendar around their birth, around that day. And so it's no surprise, um, and I don't know if you know the story, Dionysius, um, uh, and there was a lot of Dionysius um, in the early 400s, 500s um, AD. Uh, And so he took on a surname of the Little. So Dionysius the Little. I kind of like that. You can refer to me as Brian the Little. Better than Brian the Gigantic um, or Overweight. Um, So Dionysius the Little. uh, he uh, came up with the brilliant idea that we should reorganize the calendar um, the whole year uh, around the birth of Jesus. Now, originally, um, he considered the birth of Jesus taking place sometime in March, which actually might be true. Um, eventually, uh, it gets shifted to December. And the whole calendar, the church calendar, is really born out of that. And our whole way of organizing our Christian year is born around um, centering the, the, the birth of Jesus, the advent of the one who is Lord. And then organizing our entire year, organizing, in fact, all of history between B.C. and A.D. around the coming of Jesus. This isn't a mere act of kind of worshipful piety. It was a political declaration. It's a declaration that all of history is centered on the coming of Jesus, the one who is Lord. That all the Caesars that had come before were, were, were just claiming something that wasn't theirs. That all of time should be organized around the coming of this Jesus. The claims of Advent and Christmas are total. They're not private. They're absolutely public. And their authority extends everywhere. And so, how will sorrow turn to joy? How will darkness give way to light? How will the yoke, the rod, the staff be broken from the oppressor? Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. This is the meaning of the coming of Jesus. It's fitting tonight that we'll laugh and it'll be cute. (laughs) We'll see the children putting on a play. Not a big production. I don't know how many of you grew up in churches like this, but um, the church I grew up in, every Christmas, it was like, I don't know how much it was spent on this thing, but it, they had like a giant, did y'all ever grow up in, any of you grew up in like, I, I think this is like a Texas thing, but those big giant Christmas trees that like they put people in, I think they're called living Christmas trees. Did y'all ever do that? <laughs> those are amazing. I mean, you've got to go to Texas at some point just to see these things. I don't even know if they do them anymore. There's probably safety issues. But um, so the choir would stand in this Christmas tree and there would be like real camels, like llamas, and like walking down the aisle, doing what llamas and camels do in the aisle. Um, and it was like the biggest production of the year. I mean, it was insane. And so, and it was meant to wow you. you know, there's like lasers and smoke machines and lights and and the choir was amazing, and they have a full orchestra, and this is a whole shebang. Um, I, I love the fact that we're going to gather tonight, and we're going to look at little children dressed as sheep with, like, black stuff on their noses. And, and there'll be angels 
um, as Ramona Glad was trying to explain to us with the little halo, she was going to have a circle on her head because that's what angels have. Um, and, and, and we're going to gather in the most simple and beautiful way imaginable. Um, and it will be a declaration of the hubris of our political establishment. We gather in the simplest way possible to celebrate the coming of a king who in the face of kings who sought their own honor, in the face of governments and empires that sought to bring glory, the glory of Rome, to see that honored and, and sung about among all the nations of the earth, here comes a king who will rule all the nations, who will truly establish peace and justice forever and ever and ever. And he's born as a child in a manger. His attendants, the ones that celebrate his birth, are shepherds. So how will darkness give way to light? How will the rod of centuries of oppression and tyranny be broken? How will moral darkness finally give way to righteousness? How how will the endless spilling of blood cease? Coming of a child. A son. Here, right at the beginning, is God's ironic mocking of our hubris, of our pride. Fathers and husbands, it's been a conviction for me in reflecting on these realities. How, how, oftentimes how much seriousness I treat my own authority. Such that a defiant child saying no. Um, the, the, how, how much of my frustration in parenting is often born of how much pride I have. How quickly I, I lose my patience with my kids not because I want their best, not because I'm trying to guide them into the ways of wisdom and righteousness, but because I'm offended that they would ever defy me. Verse six is God mocking us. Absolutely mocking that. We treat ourselves with such seriousness and yet God establishes righteousness. He establishes wisdom. He establishes justice. He ends oppression and pride ascending a son. A son, and it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Um, this word government, you shouldn't think of it as kind of the Washington establishment. You should think of it as all authority, all governance, Everything, any magistrate, any governor, any mayor, any president, any Congress, any Supreme Court, all of that upon his shoulder. So here is one who possesses all authority. Um, Not kind of the separation of powers. That's over with Jesus. Um, Not... um, not, different kinds of governments, not different levels of government, but all government on his shoulders, such that all governments everywhere are answerable to him. Every mayor, do you know this? Every mayor, their authority is derived from, is subject to King Jesus. 
the claim of this text is that every president, every senator, every prime minister, every king and queen and prince, um, every uh, small kind of bureaucrat at every single level of government, that all of them, um, all of any authority that they have is limited by, is derived from, and is subject to the authority of King Jesus. That's the claim of this text. Echoed in Jesus' own claim that all authority, all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him. So what kind of government or governor is he? Four descriptions. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Let's take those in turn. Wonderful counselor. Shouldn't think here that this is kind of our modern term of counselor. It's not a a reference to Jesus as your therapist. Wonderful counselor here speaks to um, the one from whom all wisdom is derived. This Jesus, this child born, comes as the deliverer of all wisdom. True wisdom. Um, Within... uh, Within historic governments, the, the, the counselor is the one who provides legal wisdom, legal counsel, counsel concerning what is righteousness, what's the best way for this, um, for this people to be ruled such that they flourish. And so Jesus comes as the wonderful counselor, the one who is light and wisdom, answering the question, how shall we live? Mighty God, this language is used um, in scripture to describe God as a warrior, as the one who overcomes um, all of his enemies, all of the enemies of his people, all of those who would oppress his people, who destroy his people. And so this Jesus comes, as we see vividly in passages like um, Revelation 19 and Revelation chapter 6 and 7 and other places in scripture, this Jesus, this one who comes to save his people from their sins, he also comes as mighty God, as the warrior who, who conquers all of our enemies supremely, sin and death itself but putting down all those who refuse to worship the Father um, in the Son and by the Spirit, um, those who stand as, as, stand as enemies and refuse to bow the knee to King Jesus, he will conquer the oppressor, the tyrant, one who would be king and would not answer to Jesus. Next, he is called the everlasting Father. This speaks always of inheritance. That he comes not merely as a king with us as his subjects. He comes as a father who adopts us as his children. The beauty here is marvelous. Where will we find a home? Where will we belong? How will we have anything to our name? Because of this one who comes not merely as a counselor, not merely as a warrior, but as a father. Father, to grant us an inheritance, to care for us, to provide for us to welcome us into his home. And last, the Prince of Peace. There's been much confusion about the nature of peace. Um, Historically, the the doctrine of pacifism has been um, an erroneous one. Uh, One that believed that God's chief end, his goal is merely the end of violence. But, But in scripture, the end of violence comes because of the end of evil. 
It's not that violence is the problem, it's that evil is the problem. And the great promise that peace would come, that peace will reign, that peace will extend to all the nations of the earth, and that that peace comes not because peace is the goal, but because righteousness is the goal. Um, uh, Peace doesn't come because um, merely the great goal is to end violence. No, the great goal is to put down all sin, to put away death forever. And so the reason why peace will increase is because sin will be put down. Death will be rolled back. Evil will be no more. So there'll no longer be any need for violence. No need for bloodshed. So this one who is the Prince of Peace comes as the marker that death's days are numbered. That evil's days are numbered. That wholeness and life and flourishing is coming. So this child comes. Light breaks into the darkness. And how is his rule established? Look, verse seven. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The the rule of Jesus is not established all at once. It's not established all at once at his first coming. And I don't think it's established kind of all at once at its second coming. Um, It is something that is born, it begins, and forever and ever and ever, slowly, at first, sometimes barely perceptible, it increases. The promise, the description in this text uh, of the authority of Jesus, of the reign of Jesus, um, of the government of Jesus, and as it extends to all the nations of the earth, as his peace, his shalom, his wholeness, his righteousness is extended to all the nations of the earth, it will grow up, um, to use the language of Jesus, um, uh, like a mustard seed growing up, like wheat growing up among tares. As we look at the world, his government, his authority is growing even now. His peace is growing even now. And so for 2,000 years, the authority of King Jesus has been growing up slowly. Sometimes, sometimes we can't even believe it's there. But it grows increasing forever and ever and ever. And we as the people of God stand and look at history and look at this moment and said, his authority is increasing even now. His peace is increasing even now. The the reign of Jesus is increasing even now. And so this light, this liberation, this fathering, this peace doesn't come all at once, it comes slowly, but always increasing, always pushing forward, always working its way into the cracks of every single part of our society, slowly at times. And with Calvin, I'll say he draws straight often with crooked lines. The promise is it is increasing and will increase forever and ever and ever. And as he does so, his justice is established. His righteousness, the way of living according to God's law, God's words, God's commands, it increases from this time, Isaiah says, the coming of Jesus forevermore. It has not stopped and it will not stop. Last, how is this coming about? 
Is it coming about through our own moral self-efforts? Is it coming about through our political activism? Is it coming about through our wisdom, our smarts? Is it our strength that brings us about? No, look at the bottom of verse 7. It is the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will do this. Have you grown tired? Don't worry. God is zealous to do this. Have you grown discouraged? Don't worry. It is the zeal of God to do this. Have you grown afraid or anxious? Oh, don't be. It is the zeal of God himself that will do this. God has come and we confess as his people that Jesus Christ is Lord. He has come to overcome all oppression, all government overreach, all government hubris, um, all attempts to claim for ourselves um, as mere human beings um, a kind of omnipotent power um, over sickness, over death, over injustice. He comes to establish his reign forever and ever and ever. Does he deal with our sins? Yes. Does he overcome death and the resurrection? Yes. But he does so as Lord. So we as his people celebrate an advent of the king of all the nations. The one to whom all authorities will answer to. Whether their government office is right down the street or in Washington, D.C. or in London, England or Beijing, China. They will answer to Jesus. They must obey Jesus. We in the face of all hubris must above all else answer to and submit to Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. So Father, may we trust in the reign of Christ. May we find and believe and enact wise and clear and public ways of confessing our allegiance to the authority of Jesus over all other authorities. May we call all authorities everywhere, be they fathers or husbands or managers or mayors or governors or city councilmen or senators or presidents or prime ministers. May we actively call them to account. May we warn them that they will answer to Jesus, their Lord, their King, their Master. May we testify with our lives that he is our king. That all authority is marginalized in relation to his authority. May we worship him alone as the one who has purchased us with his blood. Who has dealt with our sins. Who has conquered death. And whose reign and whose peace will increase forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's prepare now for communion.